If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark uh, with me. Uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 1. We've been in this just uh, just two weeks. And so want to read uh, this together as we uh, jump in here. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. I'm reading from the ESV Bible. It says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. You guys can have a seat. All right. Um, I'm not sure if, if uh, you guys are nostalgic, have good memories, if this is something that as you think about uh, your lives, you're good, you're good with dates even. But if you can for a second, um, can you remember exactly where you were 12 years ago? Think about that for a second. 12 years back, what were you doing? Where were you working? Uh, what were you up to in life? Maybe you were at a completely different stage of life. You had a totally different job. Uh, maybe you were living in a different state at the time. Um, I can remember exactly where I was uh, about 12 years ago. Uh, we were getting ready to have our first child, um, Owen. Um, and so, actually, Owen's in the back there. Uh, he's, he's, he's helping out this morning. And so, um, there's something that's unique about having your first kid. Uh, and for those of you guys who have had children, and I know some people don't and can't, and um, totally understand that that's a, a different journey. But if, if you've had kids before, uh, you know that first kid is special and unique in regards to, like, you're proud of all your kids, of course. Uh, you love all your kids equally, right? Um, but there's something unique about that first kid because there's, like, this whole space in your brain that was, like, empty and, and uh, kind of devoid of stress and worry, and, and that was initiated after your first kiddo. And all of a sudden, you care about things that you never thought you care about, and, and you think about things that you never spent time thinking about before. And so one of the things that I just want to throw out, just kind of as you guys get to know me as, as a pastor and kind of hear from, from me a little bit, um, part of why I was overwhelmed in meeting Owen, our, our first kid of four, um, was because I'd actually never met anybody in my life that looked like me before, that that looked like exactly like me as far as family. So uh, part of my story is I was adopted uh, at the age of two years old. Uh, my birth parents died um, early on, earlier than that. And so in Korea, when I was, when I was kind of like, uh, I guess, those first two years, I didn't know my parents, and so I was adopted and brought over to, uh, to the States after that. And so there's kind of a longer story in that version, but Having, having my son Owen be, be born and, um, and kind of enter the world and, and have that whole experience with my wife and everything, it was actually pretty overwhelming. It wasn't something that I had actually anticipated being a, a big deal. But it, it was because I had never met somebody who looked like me before. Like, we all have relatives and we all have people who, like, kind of resemble us. And we didn't even find the gender ahead of time. Um, and so it was kind of one of those experiences where 12 years ago, um, in May of 2010, I got to kind of run out into the, the lobby of the hospital and be like, it's a boy, right? Like, this is exciting, and he looks just like me. It's kind of crazy. And I remember that moment, like, this is my son. And I'm, I'm so proud of him. I'm so, I don't even know him yet, but I'm so proud of him, and I can't wait for you to get to know him. 
And if you guys are parents, you remember those early days, and then it changes, right? You're not so proud. You're not so excited about it sometimes, but just kidding, buddy. Our passage this morning takes us into somewhat similar waters. There's, there's this dynamic happening where, where we, we see that Jesus is mentioned uh, for the first time here in Mark in our passage starting in verse 9. And he's baptized by John the Baptist. And God, like a proud father, runs out in the hospital lobby. And he announces, he looks just like me. This is my son. I'm so proud of him. I can't wait for you to meet him. That's what's happening here in this passage. And so if you're, if you're new with us this morning, maybe you missed last week. We started the Gospel of Mark last Sunday, and so we started with those first eight verses. And so just to recap uh, just a little bit where we've gotten so far, you haven't missed much. John the Baptist, he, he comes out of the wilderness, and he's this kind of crazy-looking guy. He eats crazy things. He's, he's yelling a lot. He's shouting kind of these, these things that people haven't heard before, and he's telling everybody to, to repent and be baptized. And so people are, are, are really kind of amazed by John, and so they, they respond in this way uh, when John says this. And John is this unlikely messenger, and he has this message that he repeats over and over again. Repent, be baptized. Repent, be baptized. Because there's somebody who's coming that you have to get ready for. And and, in many ways, that's kind of what the first part of of Mark was last week was, are you prepared to encounter Jesus Christ? Are you ready for this encounter that you're going to have with him? Because we we shouldn't approach uh, Jesus with kind of this uh, chalantless, right, being nonchalant. We should approach him with preparation and thoughtfulness. And now Jesus is here in verse 9, and he gets this impressive introduction. His dad, who happens to be God, is uh, beaming with pride. And he wants to make it clear that Jesus is amazing. That Jesus is amazing. Now, if you're new to church or if you're maybe new to faith, I would understand that there would be kind of a question as to, like, why? Like, why is this person, Jesus, so amazing? Like, what, what has he done yet? Like, I kind of look through the, the book. It's a short book. We're in chapter 1. He hasn't done anything yet. And so there's a sense of, like, why, why is he so amazing? Why is he so loved? Why is, he, why is Jesus so well-pleasing to the Father? And so this morning, that's what I want to do is I want to jump into answering that question. What makes Jesus so amazing? What makes Jesus so well-pleasing to his Father? And that's the question we're going to answer. What is it about Jesus that makes God so pleased? And so the first thing I want to point to is already what I've been talking about is, number one, is his sonship. His sonship. And if you guys are taking notes, I encourage you guys to do that. Um, Number one is his sonship. In other words, what could make God more well-pleased? What could make actually any father more well-pleased than to see their child do exactly what they're created for? And so at this moment, when, when God speaks into Jesus' baptism and he says, man, I'm, I'm so excited about what's happening here. I'm behind it. I'm supporting it. This is my son, and I want you all to know that. What could make a father more excited than seeing his son do and fulfill all the things that he grew up to do? And this is what the Gospel of Mark is actually after from the start. Actually, if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 1, you see this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first sentence, Mark is establishing that Jesus is God's Son. So there's no surprises there whatsoever. And we see this even further kind of demonstrated through this baptism event. 
And so we're going to see through these verses, through, especially through 9 through, through 12, 9 through 11, that, that God affirms Jesus' sonship his, through his words, through his actions, and through who uh, arrives at this event. So first of all, look at God's words. I mentioned already Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We, we, we see that every, that every word of scripture is breathed out by God. And so when Mark shares this, information, he is declaring God's truth from the very start. This is a story, this gospel is a story about Jesus, all right? So we see that. Mark 1.11, if you turn there, you can see that. It says clearly, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. One of the things that I want to remind you of this morning is that um, the Bible is a book that, while it's many books, it's actually one book. And as we consider what that means, that means that sometimes when we read Scripture, it's pointing back to something um, that's important as well. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 2 for a minute. Psalm 2. It's right kind of in the middle of your Bible in the Old Testament. And and Psalm 2, there's some connection here in verse 7 especially. And I like to think that when, when God announces, hey, Jesus, you are my son, uh, my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Uh, we know from Scripture that Jesus himself loved Scripture. And so that means he loved the Old Testament. And that means he had it hidden in his heart. He was passionate about God's word. And so being, being that Jesus knew all those things, he probably had to crack a smile as he remembered the psalmist in chapter 2. And so I'm going to read this to you guys and, and, and see if you can kind of see some, uh, some kind of overlap here. Psalm 2 the reign of the Lord's anointed. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession. You shall, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What, what is happening here in Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is, is, a, is a psalm, it's a coronation psalm. You guys ever watch uh, Frozen, right? Some of you guys know that word from Frozen, right, that movie? And so it's coronation day, right? Like there's this moment where the king is being introduced to all the, the people of the kingdom. And so Psalm 2, in a way, is God saying, hey, look, there, there are rulers and there are kingdoms and there are people who are important all throughout the earth. But there is one king who you have yet to, to meet. And there is one who is greater than all these other kings. And he happens to be, verse 7 says, he's my begotten son. He is the one who's going to change all things moving forward. And so this points in, in, uh, in Mark 1, verse 11, it points back to Psalm 2, verse 7. And we see that God is faithful to provide this king that was being promised. The, the, the Jews would have known at the time that uh, we're not talking about David. We're not talking about Solomon. These, these, uh, these words are too lofty and too great to simply give to an earthly king. 
There is someone else who's being named, and it's Jesus Christ, God's beloved son, the true king. And so not only is this evidence in God's words that Jesus is God's son, but we also see his actions. Look at verse, uh, look at the verse before it in verse 10. Look what God does um, in Mark 1, verse 10. When he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. So this is, this is a, I'm not sure if you guys have been baptized before. I hope you have. We're going to talk about it right now. But I'm not sure what happened in your baptism. Probably not this, right? Like, this is pretty dramatic of an event. Um, the, the heavens are being torn open. Now, a few things are happening here that I want to point out. First of all, there's some foreshadowing happening here. Um, meaning that we're reading something here in Mark 1 that is going to be pointed back to in Mark 15. And so hopefully you're still around as we kind of wrap up Mark in about a year. But I'll, maybe I'll point back to this point at this moment and say, remember when I said this in Mark 1? Mark 15 38, we're fast forwarded through the life of Jesus, through the cross, through his death. And we see in Mark 15 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what, is, what, what, what are we talking about here? The moment that Jesus was, was crucified on the cross, when he, was, he gave up his life for the sins of the world, past, present, future, when that happened, there was this huge uh, curtain. Uh, Josephus, in actually a book called The Jewish Wars, he's a Jewish historian, Josephus says that this curtain was 80 feet tall. 80 feet tall. That's a huge curtain. And it was ripped from top to bottom. It was torn open from top to bottom. And this is the exact moment when Jesus paid for our sins, our failures, and those are forever erased. Now, one of the things to remember as we walk through Mark is that Mark was a real guy, and he had perspective, right? Like, he's writing this story not real time. This isn't a journal by Mark where he doesn't understand what happened afterwards. Mark has written this after Jesus has gone through all these things. And so what I like to think is happening here is that before the disciples are called, before the miracles happen, before the teaching happens, Mark is dropping in this Easter egg. And he's saying, look, Jesus is victorious. And in the same way that God tore the skies open when he was baptized, one day something else will be torn open. This veil, this, this curtain will be torn at the moment that Christ is victorious from the cross. And so take heart. Be hopeful. We will experience that victory too. Mark is being a good pastor to us. He's being a, a help to us. And he's saying, look, this is an important moment that we'll get back to in 15 chapters. The sky is torn open. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. It's, it's kind of fit for a king, right? It's this coronation day. It's this moment where everything is kind of happening and, and God shows up and, and he speaks from the heavens. I'm not sure what that was like, by the way. I'm not sure if that was like a thing where everyone heard that or if it was just Jesus. Who knows? The sky is being torn open. You know, and, you know what it makes me think about actually is, is Disneyland fireworks, right? Like at the end of the day, it's like you're all tired, but you're just kind of sticking around for fireworks at the end of the day. Like, my kids love the fireworks at Disneyland. There's only one person who loves fireworks at Disneyland more than my kids, and that's Ellie Alexander. Ellie loves fireworks, too. So, um, a bit of an inside joke, but that's okay. So, uh, we're a small church. We can do inside jokes for right now. <laughs> so, if you've been to Disneyland before, you've seen those fireworks. It's like 15 minutes of lights, of, like, music, uh, like, all the most, you know, expensive gadgets and things that they've kind of pointed towards this, this time at the end of the night. And 
this is kind of what I like to like think of when I think about the skies being torn open. It's like everybody's just like freaked out and amazed by what is happening. And that's what's happening here as well. It's dramatic. But you know what? In, in, a, in a sense, it's also disturbing. Right? Can you imagine the sky being torn open? Uh, in fact, the Greek word is schizo there. It's, it's where we get the word scissors from. The sky is being ripped open. It's torn open. And honestly, if you kind of uh, remove the idea of Disneyland fireworks from your mind, and you think about the sky being torn open, that may not be a positive or pleasant thing, right? Like if you are, especially if you are kind of a, a tribal people or maybe uh, nomadic people, and you don't, you, you've never seen like really dramatic scientific things before, and you see the sky being torn open, I mean, you're, you're probably freaked out. And actually, there is a biblical precedent for our fear. The prophet Isaiah, he says in Isaiah 64, he says to the Lord, open the heavens, split them open, Lord, tear them apart, wipe out evil on this earth, come down in judgment on sinful mankind. This is what Isaiah the prophet says. And so there have been times where godly men who have had a relationship and conversation directly with God have pleaded with God to rip, up the, rip open the, the sky and, and to rain down judgment. And so even, you know, even that biblical precedent, it shapes our expectations a little bit. And so maybe God sees us that way. God sees us as sinful and, and wicked and not worthy of his time. And if I told you that God was going to open up the heavens, what would follow? Uh, man, he's done it before, right? He's wiped out the world in the flood. And so we know that he's capable of this. Maybe it's fire. Maybe it's judgment. Maybe it's this heavenly army coming out of this kind of tear in the sky. And so who would God invite? Who would God bring through, through this moment? Something otherworldly, something potentially awful. And instead, what I want you to see is that God shocks us with his kindness. God shocks us with his kindness. Look what he invites in verse 10. And it says this, the spirit descended on him like a dove. The spirit descending on him like a dove. May this just be a reminder to us of God's character. May this be a reminder to us that God is, is good and he's, he's kind-hearted and he's gentle with us. May this challenge our perception of who God is. Instead of being this angry, frustrated God who's sick of mankind, that he is merciful and good. And instead of condemnation, he brings kindness and help through the Holy Spirit. This is a rare display, by the way, of this moment where uh, this, this theological idea of the Trinity exists kind of clearly in Scripture. We have the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so all these things... All these things, God's words, God's actions, and who he invites to this event, it all points us to how God is so well pleased with Jesus, his son. And like a proud papa, God says, this is my son. And he is the focal point. He is the, he is the point of how I will redeem the world. And he is the fulfillment of every prophecy. He's the king that you've been waiting for. And God is overjoyed. Uh, Two more points. What else? God is, God is pleased with his beloved son, Jesus. But uh, number two, God is also pleased because Jesus is willing to be baptized. His willingness to be baptized. Is, do you ever think that it's strange? If you've read the gospel accounts before, maybe you think that it's strange that, that Jesus got baptized. Like, what is the, what's the deal with that? Why would he get baptized? Why would he need to get baptized? Uh, it's strange for us. And, and I, I don't want you to kind of like... 
uh, think ahead a little bit. Don't miss this. Our theology around baptism may need to be adjusted here. And sometimes that we, we, we do things, or we have done things, maybe you've been baptized in the past, maybe you've been to church before and there's been a baptism, and you're thinking something is happening spiritually when maybe it, something slightly different is actually truthfully happening. And it's important for us to understand what, what's happening here. So let me just give you a straw man to poke at here, okay? Uh, this, this statement may sound good, but it's slightly off, okay? Here's the slightly off statement. I got baptized, and when I came out of the water... My old sinful self is now gone. That kind of sounds pretty good, actually, right? Like, there's an element of that that's like, yeah, that kind of sounds Christian. That kind of sounds orthodox. Like, I was baptized. I got dunked underwater. And when I came up, I was cleansed from my sin. That's what the water does, right? That's what's happening at this baptism event. Now, if you zoom out and if you think about how maybe the world or how maybe, you know, kind of, uh, peripheral Christians think about baptism, that's exactly maybe what they think about what baptism is. And if that's the case, there, there's zero sense in why Jesus would be baptized. Why would he need to be baptized if when you get into the water and you're dunked underneath water, you come up and you're, now you're sinless? Because as Christians, we know that Jesus never sinned, that he was the perfect human being. He was the perfect God, uh, father, I'm sorry, perfect God man. And so it would make zero sense for him to be baptized. Well, God, God requires a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus was that sacrifice. And this was always the case, in the old, even in the Old Testament. And so if you grew up thinking that, that baptism cleansed sin, then these verses may be disorienting or confusing. And so one of the things that I just want to make clear this morning is that baptism is, is not about being washed clean. It's not. Baptism is about identification. That's what we're doing when we are baptized. Baptism is not us being washed clean of our sins, us having a fresh start in life, us being able to say, oh, I, I did it, I'm now a Christian. Baptism is saying, I identify with Christ through baptism. That is so important, church. It's important for us to understand that, that that's what Jesus is doing here. It's about identification. One of my uh, kind of favorite movies growing up um, is actually Toy Story, um, and it's a, it's a movie you've probably all seen before. But you guys all recall there's, you know, Woody, and there's Buzz, and, you know, Woody's this cowboy, Buzz is Lightyear, he's a spaceman, and so um, they are Andy's toys, right? Like, they are owned by Andy's, and so they, they, go, they go everywhere with Andy. They go to the store, they go in the car. Uh, Andy loves his toys, and so because Andy loves his toys, what does Andy do to Woody and Buzz? He flips him over, and he writes his name on the bottom of their feet, right? Like, he's, he's identifying and saying, these are my toys. This is, this is uh, these, are, these toys are not like anybody else's toys. I mean, maybe there's other Andy, I was a Woody and, and Buzz Lightyear's out there, but these guys are mine. These are my toys. And so in the same way, we see this is exactly what's happening with Jesus as he is being baptized. He's saying, this is, this is proof. This is an external marking. This is a moment where we as Christians are commanded in the same way to be marked, to be identified as believers. And so that's why baptism it should always be a public event. It should always be something that happens uh, ideally amongst your church family. And so, look, we're like three weeks in here at the King's Church. Let me just say this. We will do baptisms here. We're excited about that. And we want to encourage you guys, as you think about, maybe you have, if you haven't been baptized yet, let me just kind of squash some things that maybe you're thinking. 
I've heard some great arguments before about like, hey, I want to get baptized on my birthday. Or I want to get baptized in this, this lake in this specific city. Or I want to get baptized with my whole family and make sure they're all there at the same exact moment. Those are like nice things, but that is not the purpose of baptism. The purpose of baptism is to, is to obey immediately and to identify yourself with the Father and say, I am in the family. I'm in the family. And so if you haven't been baptized yet, I would encourage you to do so because, look, it doesn't save you. It doesn't cleanse your sin. Jesus does that, but it does identify you as one of God's children. And so, so God is well pleased with Jesus, his son, for being baptized because in humility he steps out and he says, I will, I will do this thing that everybody else is doing. I mean, kind of paint the picture for a minute. Think about it in your mind. Jesus is standing there. He's standing there with everybody else. He's in line at the Jordan River. And, and he, he, he's like, he likely knows who he is. He, he understands what's happening, but he's there standing in line waiting for John the Baptist after all these guys are, are getting baptized and he has the same experience as everyone else. And in humility, Jesus, he exemplifies what it means to be obedient in this way. So that's the second thing, because of his willingness to be baptized. What else? Why is God so pleased by Jesus? Number three is this, uh, his victory in the wilderness. Let me reread this to you in verses 12 and 13. We see in verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So we have, we have a, a victory that's happening here in the wilderness. Now, it's not, it's not explicitly said here in the Gospel of Mark, but in other Gospels, we see that, that the enemy came, Satan came and tempted Jesus over and over again with things. He said, hey, look, I'll, I'll give you power. I'll give you anything you want to, any riches you want. And because of the Spirit, because of uh, Jesus' determination to be in the Spirit, he's able to uh, buck off these temptations. Mark is a little bit more succinct. I mentioned it last week. Mark is, is very kind of quick and uh, kind of immediate, and so he sums things up in some ways. But this is what happens. And after he's baptized, the same Spirit who shows up, pushes Jesus. It says it right there. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. What a good friend he is, right? Like, uh, Jesus is 12, 12, starts 40 days in the wilderness, and he's forced outside. Have you ever been forced outside before? Maybe you've had to have your, like, house tented by, for termites, right? Maybe you have that friend that we all have who is like, go camping with me. Let's go camping. Let's do camping. Let's go camping. And, uh, look, why do, we, why do we have friends sometimes that, like, all, are always trying to get us to go outside, right? Like, it's, it's nice inside. It's nice. Like, Jim Gaffigan once said, when you go for a hike, the first thing you realize is that it's a mistake, right? Like, so nothing good happens outside. And it's in the Bible. It's right here. Like, like Satan stuff is out here in the, in, in the wilderness. So this isn't about, like, a weekend warrior habit. This isn't just about kind of, like, what does Jesus like to do on the weekend? Uh, he, the point of Mark bringing this in is that, Jesus is, is uncomfortable. He's potentially unsafe. Why? Because he's out in the wilderness. And so if you look at the rest of your Bible, if you understand what's happening throughout the rest of Scripture, the wilderness is consistently this place where people encounter God. That's why it's important that Jesus started his ministry out in the wilderness. And so if you, maybe like you're like me and you like the desert. Uh, I'm kind of weird like that. People talk about, you know, mountains or beach or, you know, whatever. I always like desert too. I'm like, I like the desert. And 
if you've ever gone out to the desert, you know, middle of the night, stars are completely out there. It's, it's beautiful. And it's this moment where kind of your head gets cleared. And the space around you kind of fades away. And I, I think that traditionally we see this. This is a place where people encounter God through the wilderness. Abraham and his conversations with God in the desert. Moses in the burning bush. And, and most notably, Israel through the Exodus when they roamed the wilderness for 40 years before the promised land. So it's important that Jesus has these moments in the wilderness where he is able to experience God's goodness and his uh, provision for him as he battles the enemy. So there are, there are victories to be had here in the wilderness. And there's two things that I want to point out as we look at these victories. First of all, there's a victory over the enemy. There's a victory over the enemy. I mentioned this before, but other, other gospels point out a little bit more explicitly how Jesus did battle with Satan in the wilderness. There were these back and forth. There was scripture being kind of thrown out. There was, there was kind of these conversations that probably lasted for days back and forth. Something very deeply spiritual is happening and being rewritten and rehashed between, between the players in the, in the wilderness. And it's almost like, you know, have you ever you know, gathered with family on a holiday before and people are talking in one room and you kind of like turn the corner and they stop talking? Because they're like talking about something really important or maybe even historical or it's like this conversation that keeps on happening every holiday. And I, I kind of like to think that this is kind of what's happening. They're kind of going back at it. These like ancient kind of cosmic arguments, these discussions, these temptations that are happening that Jesus once again, he, he engages Satan. And with the help of the angels, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he's able to defeat him. And it's important that very early on in his ministry, he's pushed out into the wilderness. It's the same wilderness where God's people fumbled around and fooled around for 40 years. And this is a spiritual war that is happening here. And Jesus Christ succeeds where all else have failed. And this is a big statement. This is a big statement to Satan. That on his own turf, that the Messiah is here. And, and he's victorious. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus will succeed where others have failed. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy. He is the one who Israel and the world has been waiting for. And this is a, a massive blow to the enemy. This is a massive blow when Jesus walks away from the wilderness. And as we'll hear about next week, starts his ministry um, kind of from, from there. So that's the first victory that we get to celebrate in and see that Jesus is victorious over the enemy. The number two is he's victorious on our behalf. He's victorious on our behalf. So what is in store for the rest of Mark? In terms of, of Christ's victory here, we see that Jesus endures a very hard life. He starts uh, his ministry here in the wilderness. He's cold. He's hungry. He's fighting off Satan. He's going to gather people. He's going to preach. He's going to pour out his whole life for the purpose of giving to other people. He will, he will gather those people, and everyone in his life will betray him and walk away from him. And, and eventually, he'll be tortured and crucified and, and die on the cross. Why? Well, this, this goes into our understanding of the victory that we share with Christ starting in the wilderness. Why does, why does God with the willingness of his son, do all this? Well, it's, it's so that Jesus can be more than anybody else who's ever showed up. 
It's so that Jesus can serve as more than just a good teacher or a good example for us how to live. It's, it's, he does this so he can relate with every one of us. The, the pain and the suffering he experiences in the wilderness allows Jesus to relate to us more than anyone else throughout history. And so every high and every low, like, like think about your own life. If you've had, had trouble or hardship or tragedy in your life, and I know in, in, in a room like this, people have had that. There's been hardship that's happened. And do you know that in your hardship that Jesus can identify with your pain? That is a victory, and it started here in the desert. It started here in the wilderness, that every high and low, every terrible thing we've ever endured, we can turn to Christ. We can be embraced and hear him say, I know how you feel. I have been there with you. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says it this way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered while tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I mean, this makes sense practically, right? Like if, you, if you've gone through something hard, uh, then you are now a help to those who are going through something hard. And, and so Jesus steps up and he goes through the most difficult three years that any human has ever endured so that he can relate to us, so that he can serve us. Christ is tempted. And to experience temptation is a part of the human experience. Christ is hungry and thirsty. Think about all the people who are, are hungry today. Like we, we benefit from living here in, in America and in California and not, it's likely none of us are, are hungry today. Maybe some of us are hungry for lunch, but like not true hunger, right? And so for those in the world who are truly hungry, they can identify with Christ because Christ was hungry. Christ suffers in Mark 1 and even more so on the cross so he can serve as that ultimate comfort for us. Why would he do this? If, if Jesus was God's son, why would he subject himself to 40 days in the desert temptation, hardship. It's because he sees us differently than maybe we think. Do you know that Christ sees us as his brother and sister? That is who we are to Jesus Christ. And, and so his love for us is not just simply a, a transactional, like, hey, if you do for me, then I will love you this much. His love for us is because he sees us as family. Like, we are his brothers and sisters. That's what that means, to be in God's family. It means that we are brothers and sisters to Jesus himself. Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So, so listen to that. For he who sanctifies, who is the one who sanctifies? It is, it's God who sanctifies. It's, it's through his son, Jesus, who sanctifies. And for those who are sanctified, meaning that for those of us who have sinned in our lives and are going through the process of being more and more holy, we all have the same source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If Jesus is our brother, that means, listen to this, that means that an even more amazing truth is, is available to us. That means that God is our father. God is our father because Jesus is our brother. What a victory that is. 
That is amazing that because of Jesus' work in the desert, because of his work in ministry, because of his work on the cross, it, it brings us into relationship with our brother, Jesus. And that makes our father the same. So what happens in, in every family, or hopefully most families? Like we share in every victory, right? Like so if, if dad buys a new car, right, and the whole family's excited, everyone gets to ride in the car, Right? Like, that's, yeah, like, let's ride in dad's car. This is so exciting. Dad got a new car. Let's, it smells new. Like, what's that button do? And, and all those things that we experience, right? Like, that's, that's a benefit for the whole family. And so our proximity to Christ as our brother means there is victory for us as God being our father. That means we are God's children. That means God has a deep affection for you. That means as we look back at Mark 1, verses 9 through 11, and how well-pleased he is with his son Jesus, we can apply those same things to us. We can apply that same love and belovedness and affection that God has for his son to us, his children. Well, that's not the same, right? Because Jesus was pleased with God was pleased with Jesus because of all that he did, right? Well, look at even here, like, from a, a literary standpoint. It's, it's amazing. Before Jesus does one thing, Jesus hasn't even done ministry yet. He hasn't gone out in the desert yet. He hasn't gone out and died on the cross yet. And before he does one thing, God proclaims his love for him. And the same thing is true for us, that God loves and accepts us prior to our productivity. Before we can do anything for God at all, he loves us. As his children, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so, church, as we just wrap this up, may, that, may this be the reminder that you maybe need this morning, that we are deeply loved by the Father. We are deeply loved by Father God. Just like Jesus, God is saying to us this morning that you are my beloved child. I love you, and with you, I am well pleased. Let's bow our heads together. God, we, we thank you for this truth of Scripture. We thank you for the account of, of Mark and the life of Jesus. God, we rejoice in the victories of, of our brother Jesus, the way that he, he endured temptation in the desert, the way that he, he lived his life perfectly in ministry and relationships, the way that he went to the cross for us on our behalf. And so, so Lord, would you just... Remind us, God, of the great love of Jesus for us. God, would you also help us connect, even just like theologically, relationally, how, how it works that because he is our brother, you are our father. And God, would we turn to you and approach you like a, a child would a father and say, God, Father God, would you, would you help me today? Would you give me encouragement today? And Lord, would you remind us that you are quick to give what we need. Like any good dad. Praise in your name. Amen.